The pandemic also made me realize that we are really all connected. There is no way we can say, oh, we need to turn the clock backwards. We need to close everyone's borders. We need to produce everything from A to Z. I think the next conversation should be, how can we do it better? Yeah. How can the next generation of globalization and supply chain movement benefit more women yes. and benefit more people in developing countries who has been the backbone of labor growth? Mm-hmm. And how can we give it more sustainable, longer term perspective? Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of Still Being Molly. And this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I get to sit down with an entrepreneur, a CEO, a nonprofit director, a community leader, or just basically an amazing person who is trying to make a positive impact, not only through their life, but also with their career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact wherever you are. My guest this week is Mei Shi, a Chinese-American entrepreneur who is the founder and CEO of two global companies, Yes, She May and the Chesapeake Bay Candle Company. She's also the author of Burn, which details her journey from China to starting and growing a multi-million dollar business in the U.S., In June 2020, May created the e-commerce platform, YesSheMay.com, to help women-owned brands reach a larger audience and scale. Her team aims to provide consumers a curated collection of thoughtful, high-quality products made by talented women vendors from around the world. It was such an honor to have May on the show. She is just such a boss. She has grown these incredible companies, multi-million dollar companies. The Chesapeake Bay Candle Company was a household name, is a household name. And it was just so cool to sit down and hear her vision and her passion for elevating women entrepreneurs around the world. She is just one of those people that I am cheering on in everything that she does. She's incredible. You're going to love this conversation. Before I get to my chat with May, I want to thank our partner of the show, and that is Demet. And I love Damas so much that I actually have the founder, Julie Billingham, here with me to share a little bit more about why this ethical brand is so incredible. Julie? Oh, Molly, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to partner with you and to be a part of this community that you've built. I mean, Demay is a sustainable footwear and fashion brand, and we have the steadfast commitment to creating authentic fashion and fashion accessories. And it's really our great honor to produce things that matter. And our Haitian craftsmen and women really take such pride in each handbag we make, each pair of sandals that we assemble. And um, we just love what we do so much. And we are, we're proud to craft, you know? And so thanks for having us. Absolutely. And for those of you who want to check out Demet, you can do so online at D-E-U-X-M-A-I-N-S.com. And you can use the promo code Molly, and that will get you 15% off your purchase. Now on to my conversation with May Shi. May, I am so excited to have you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Molly. Now that I know you're in a farm, I'm particularly (laughs) impressed with your office and the setup. Um, I'm imagining all the stretches of land and all the chickens uh, walking around in the lazy sun. What a nice picture for September. You know, it is. uh, I look at my life now and sometimes I look back, uh, you know, or I, I think about 
if 10 years ago or 15 years ago, me would have known what I'd be doing, I think the 10 or 15 years ago, me would have been like, is she on something? Like, what's happening there? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Um, you know, um, I think you moved there before the pandemic. So well, during, during the pandemic. So it was, it was a whole thing. That is a very interesting, we'll have to interview you one day. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know. Wait a second. This is, this is all about you, May. This is all about you. Um, well, I, I, you know, I, I, you know, have followed your work, um, for a few years now, and, uh, I am just so enthralled by your story. And so I'm so excited to just get the opportunity to share it with, uh, my listeners today. So let's dive right in and give us the May She 101. So tell us who you are, what you do and how you got to where you are today. She's petite. No, I'm, um, I am very fortunate to, you know, have a very sort of interesting life. Uh, I grew up in China. I was one of two daughters, but when we were growing up, Chairman Mao told the world that women hold half of the sky, which in reality means that we actually got real same pay as men. And because there are two of us, uh, two girls, my parents kind of treat us like, you know, boys too. Whatever boys can do, we are supposed to be able to do it. So I grew up in the 1960s and 70s, but when I hit 12, It was 1979. China already opened up to the world after Chairman Mao died. And they decided to, instead of waiting for diplomats to be trained at a graduate or a college level, they wanted to train students at a younger age because they understand foreign language is very hard when you are much older. So they opened eight middle and high schools in eight different cities around the country to produce diplomats at a younger age. And I was one of those students at age 12, uh, enrolled in a uh, foreign language middle school in Hangzhou, which is uh, close to Shanghai. And that really was uh, a very big turning point for me in a sense that I was growing up in a very different environment mm-hmm. than most of the kids here, or even most of the kids, particularly most of the kids in China. I was able to learn a foreign language in an emerging manner, which means you teach not only English in English, but you teach in English, world history, world art, um, Renaissance art, philosophy. As language uh, education goes, you couldn't get any better. And remember that was ni- 1979. And on top of that, we have teachers from all over the world. So one day we'll p- pick up some New Zealand tone and the next day we will have a Canadian teacher because the idea is native speakers, they have different uh, language style, and they want the students to be able to learn to understand all kinds of English, right? Not just British English, but also even Australian English. But fundamentally, it allowed me and many of the students a taste of what it would be like to be a diplomat once we grow up and go to work in the world stage. And then I continued my education uh, in Beijing, to basically move to Beijing and study for another four years. During that time, China started to witness the first sort of uh, round of entrepreneurship and the the opening of a lot of the sectors that used to be very state-owned. And I was in the middle of what was the first Silicon Valley in China, where all the universities are located in the northwest of uh, Beijing. And some of the biggest technology companies now 
emerged at that time in that location. And I remember I was never very entrepreneurial at that time, but I can feel the ideas are popping up everywhere. People feel very hopeful. There's a lot of sort of goodwill also from the rest of the world towards China, because imagine South North Korea, all of us say, we're ready to introduce other cultures to our people, and we're ready to learn from you. I think there's a lot of goodwill, and that's the environment I uh, was uh, living in. On top of that, because my English was relatively advanced compared with other students coming from non-diplomatic training background, yeah. I was recognized by my then professor of sociology, who was actually a visiting professor from Dartmouth College. She said, you know, the, the classes are really too easy for you. My husband is working for the World Bank in Beijing, and they really need a lot of translators. China was in the middle of a lot of international development programs, a lot of opening of the country to many, many countries in the world, and they just do not produce enough fast enough. So they say, why don't you work for the mission in Beijing um, part-time to help with the translation, which I love. The idea of travel has always been something uh, very attractive to me. So yeah. I start traveling with the World Bank mission to the remote parts of the country that are receiving the, the, the aids and uh, receiving donations from the World Bank. And that was the foundation of my knowledge of the world is through those trips and understanding economics, understanding the, the areas in the, in the country that really need different support. But most of all, it's kind of get me exposed to a global environment because right. the experts will come from all over the world they speak English with not just a New Zealand tone, but sometimes very heavy Thailand, uh, you know, sort of uh, intonation. And then some would be from Norway or from Denmark. And I just remember how I enjoyed that diversity and how I enjoyed being the bridge for them to the communities they're trying to help. One of the things I realized is that a lot of times there was a little bit confusion between what the local population wanted and what the World Bank wants to give them. Yeah. The World Bank would like to build latrines in a very dry desert area where the local population say, the moment we go pool, we don't see anything because it's so dry. <laughs> we really need hand pumps. You know that? Why don't you give us more hand pumps? So I'm like, who did not get the memo? Why, why are there no investigation of these kind of things? Yeah. So one of my thoughts was that big corporations, big companies, they are so far removed from the actual benefactor. Sometimes, you know, you just need to build in more communication. And that is what I ended up doing after I left China. Uh, Tiananmen Square was one of the main incidents. I graduated in 1989. So to, to answer your question, I came from that background and yeah. I came to the U.S. to become a student of communication to pursue my graduate degree. Yeah. You know, that's such an interesting, um, I just love that perspective and especially knowing what you do now and how you, you saw so much of that kind of corporate, uh, takeover in so many ways. And, and like you were saying, like this separation from reality and, uh, it's like, oh, we're going to come in and we're going to do what we think you yeah, need. You need. Rather yeah. than actually coming in and listening and saying, right. what is it, you know, how can we serve rather than, right. um, you know, just thinking about, you know, these companies coming in with like dollar signs and just knowing what you do now and how that plays so much into what you do. And so 
you came here and, you know, you had these <laughs> in so many ways, you had these dreams of being a diplomat and working in the public sector and all that kind I of know. stuff. And, uh, and didn't that happened and that didn't happen. And eventually you right. launched uh, Chesapeake Bay Candle Company, which yeah. was, you know, one of the most successful and well-recognized candle companies uh, that I've ever heard of. And right. uh, then you eventually sell Thank it you. to Yankee Candle. So right. uh, talk about that and how that all came about. Right. It sounds dazzling just to think, you know, a student of diplomat, how did she end up making candles? I have to say, my dad was very confused when she found he found out I was making candles. His reaction is, and what does candle do? I said, Dad, if you ask that question, I don't think we're going to talk about what does a candle do. So I think what happens in many of our background, and it's true not only to me, but for many people, particularly for those who graduated last year, was that what we end up learning is just a way to teach us how to be prepared for other things. I mm. think it's giving us the skills of learning itself because learning is a lifeline skill and it's a skill that you need to use all the time. For example, I graduated in 1992 here in University of Maryland because I have a dream that when I graduate, a job at the World Bank headquarters in Washington, D.C. would be waiting for me, which was very natural because I've been working with them for a long time. I really know they need people like me that can be sent into all over the world and help building those connections. But I graduated in 1992 during the first Gulf War. And during the war, because America, U.S. is the biggest donor to uh, found the World Bank, when they're in a war, you know, with the budget, they say, we're going to put some kind of freeze of hiring and because the budget cannot be met from the donor. So I went and they told me, um, go look for some jobs elsewhere. Once the war is finished and we have all the budget, uh, you know, allocated, I'm sure we can hire you back. So that sounds familiar. It sounds like those kids who graduated last year, right? Everything is a kind of on hold. We don't know what is going to happen to back to work yet. Just do something, you know, wait some tables or maybe there's no tables to wait, but, you know, make some deliveries and then we come back and hire you. So that is a lot of time, times what we face as humans and as people. We can never prepare ourselves for those natural disasters or social unrest or social disruptions. And what I learned from that time is you just have to roll up your sleeve and find whatever it takes to get you started. You just need to get started. So what I got started was not in DC, but all the way in the Big Apple. It is not glamorous. I'm not walking down Mad Gala, okay? I am in the Big <laughs> Apple to work in a medical uh, import and export company that actually at that time was exporting a lot to China because of their high-tech equipment. You know, as you can imagine, in the 1980s, when people started to open up, they realized the hospitals are also very backward. There was not enough CT scans or ultrasound machines, and China not making them yet, right? So they are buying a ton from GE, from um, ultrasound, from AccuSound or Space Lab, um, the, the, bell, the beds that you use that can race up and down. So I became an assistant manager to coordinate with those companies in the US. And it was a very much a mundane administrative job where you just push papers because 
we apply for loans from Exim Bank, the import export bank of the United States, and then we also do a lot of documentation for export decorations. So it's a lot of paperwork,、mm-hmm. and I'm very、uh, good at a lot of things, but I would say paperwork pushing is not May's favorite thing to do. <laughs> I get really bored, right? I want interactions with people. I want to change the world. I want to make an impact, and my impact. Is reflected in whether or not you know I can push those papers fast enough. Yeah. So that was not the fun part of my job, but the fun part was they put me in a place next to Bloomingdale's, and I'm sure you heard and you've been to the Bloomingdale's, the flagship in、um, Columbus Circle. Yeah. And it's just even today when you go there, you are sort of like you're Alice in a Wonderland. You know,、mm-hmm. imagine I grew up in a place where. You are lucky if there is a department store, and the department store does not have open shelves. So whatever you want, someone has to open the door with a lock and open it for you to touch. So I am like a bird out of a cage. <laughs> Every day I would go there, and、um, what is interesting is to my eyes as a foreigner and an immigrant, I observed something. I noticed something that was very, very alarming. In that I went to the fashion floor, which is usually the second floor. Beautiful fashion. You have, you know, very minimalist women's wear has the same kind of fabrication. It's no longer just florals or red and pink like girly, but very minimalist. And the cut though is very feminine. That by Donna Karen or Kevin Klein or Michael Kors. And then you go up. The more you go up, the more traditional it becomes. On the top floor. It really looked like a grandma's house、yeah. because it's very ornate. The furniture has a lot of decorative、uh, details with gilded treatment, and the teapots are full of mini flowers. And I'm just wondering why would a woman wearing a Donna Karen all black suits walking along the street of Manhattan want to go back to this traditional grandma's house? It doesn't fit.、Um, it's very heavy and dark. So I keep bringing up to my.、Um, I was married at that time. David moved to the U.S. with me, but he was staying in D.C. and working in D.C. and I was in New York. So every night I talked to him, I brought it up, and finally he had heard enough. He said, <laughs> "Why don't we both quit and started a business that just focus on what you said?" I said, "What did I say?" He said, "Well, you seem to think there is something that needs to be done in the home, you know, home goods." Department somewhere that is not fashion, but will use fashion more or less to make it interesting. So that is how we started, and it wasn't just candles. It was a, a few other product, but we took candles and other product as samples to the Charlotte Gift Show in 1994. And in one trade show, we know what we need to focus on, which is candle. So to today, I can tell everyone: if you have an idea. If you want to see if something can work or not, don't ask your friends, don't ask your family, because they don't really know,、mm-hmm. and they cannot represent the market. Go to a trade show if you're doing wholesale. Now it's even easier. You put it on Poshmark, you put it on eBay, and see if people buy it. You know that's the best test you could possibly have, and it's becoming more and more affordable to test ideas. Yeah. So I always say there's no. Stronger indication of interest than to take it to who you want to sell to. 
Yes. Oh, that's so, oh man. Let's talk (laughs) about that a little bit because I think this is something that, especially in this pandemic world where, um, you know, we've heard the term pivot a lot in the last year where you've had people laid off. You've had businesses that have brick and mortar stores that have had to, to close. You know, you've, there's been so much upheaval in so many things in our life. And, um, I love how you talked about, you know, don't ask your friends and family. Like, (laughs) and I, I, somebody, I heard this quote the other, the other day that I was like, Ooh, that stings a little bit where it was like, uh, your biggest fan is a stranger you've never met. Your biggest enemy is somebody really close to you. Right. And I was like, Oh man. Oh, oh like you know, that, oh, sting. <laughs> that stings, but it's so applicable to so many things, especially in business. And like when right. you have an idea, like somebody close to you is going to be like, ah, you shouldn't do that. No, that's a waste of time. Yada, yada, yada. Right. Where there's somebody on the internet or somebody out there who's like, I love that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so, you know, what that person in your show actually mentioned is so true because there's also a sense that they're not objective. Mm -hmm. So they could also be too uh, accommodating to a point where they hate to let you know that it's not going to work, right? So they're either all, and I feel they're not objective. So in my view, um, it's like a blind test. You need a blind test, right? You, You need a true market test. So we took 10 different categories. We have I don't know if you use them, but I sometimes like in the dead of winter and I can't find a plant that I like, I buy those silk flowers, right? They are called silk flowers. They are fake flowers, but you know, they look real. And at that time, that was a big trend. So there's fake flowers, there's candles, there's fans that are very decorative from China. You know, there's just a a hodgepodge of uh, cushions for the cars, pillows for the sofas, you name it, I have it. But each of them, interestingly, Molly, represent billions of dollars of industry. Mm-hmm. This country is so big. Yeah. Do you believe candle is a three to four billion dollar industry? Oh, yeah. Pillows I, probably is more. I've got two. <laughs> I've got two just within arm's I know, reach. In one room. And, and the thing about funny them, enough that you they, say that, because I even have a, f- look, a fake plant yes. for the listeners. <laughs> see, you, it's too relevant. The listeners, they can't see this, because you're. but I literally have a giant fake plant and candles right on my desk. Yeah, so. Exactly. Two things that I could have gone into either 50-50, but candles really speak to the audience in September because of the Christmas season, yeah. right? So, and it was the bestseller. And we listened to that vote. We focused on it, but very quickly. After the new year, we, we went to another show in New York and nobody wants the candles anymore. And I'm like, hmm, what happened? Well, it's because there are lots and lots of candle vendors uh, in this country. You can make candles, Molly. I, mm-hmm. I can tell you, all you need is a pot, some molds or some glasses, fragrances you can find in the uh, market or the, in the fair and some dyes, even food dyes. And there you go. You can make your own candles. So everybody and her cousin can make candles, right? So you have so many candle vendors, but people don't buy a lot of candles again in, uh, in, in February. They buy it to get ready for holiday. They buy spring product in February and they restock spring pillows or beautiful, you know, maybe dinnerware for Easter's. So I got a lot of time to walk around the show because now all of a sudden I had no business. And I recognized another thing that I didn't do 
is that my candle is too decorative. I don't have candle fragrances in there,、mm. and people buy fragrant candle and they burn them. People buy my candle, they don't burn them because they look pretty. It's good. People come to say, "Oh, I still have your candle and it's sitting on my mantle." I'm like, "Darn it! Why don't they burn it?、If、they don't burn it. How could I sell more?" Right. Right. So I realize again, it's the market. My friend didn't tell me that it's going to be a problem. It's the market that told me. Yes, you are right in choosing candle, but no, you chose the candle that is not a consumable. That people will not buy it all the time, and it's not going to have a fashion and seasonality to it. Go pivot, you know. Go change a little bit. Yeah. So those are the kind of things that along the way I did a lot of those pivot. One of the things about myself is I I remember mentioning that learning never stops. Yeah. Yeah. And I learned when I went to visit foreign countries in the market. I learned when I started working with a new customer. I learned even when I talk to my kids because that's the way you get all the information. <laughs> It's very interesting. Yeah, world out there. It really is. You know, and so you you built this incredible company、um, to you know this candle company that、uh, eventually you know became in so many ways a household name. I mean, the Chesapeake Baby Candle Company. And then a few years ago, you sold it, and I'm sure that people thought you were crazy. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, people what, did what not know you... many things about you know running a business. Yeah. At some point, you know, I just feel, what else can I do, and、yeah. what else can this brand do?、Um, one of my goal always has been to give it a little bit more international exposure. And give it a little bit more update because we have been working very well with companies like Target, you know, Kohl's, Bath Bath and Beyond. And I also wonder, you know, what will happen if we end up in the specialty stores where the price point can be higher? Can we add higher quality fragrances? Can we innovate more? You know, I'm a very big fan of innovation. All the ideas that worked in my business. Has been because of I would say three most important things. One is innovation. I never sit here and do the same thing over and over. I always ask myself, what is new in fashion that I can borrow? What is new in architecture? What is new in music? Or what is new in painting? The second thing that I'm very proud of is the supply chain. As you know, I'm、yeah. one of the few women that really love factories and not just looking at a factory, but running a factory, building、yeah. a factory. And that allowed me to innovate more than other people because I know where that innovation can take place at what step that is the least disruptive, least problem causing because、yeah. of the quality that can come、uh, being compromised and least、uh, costly. The last thing I, I'm very sort of fond of is the global mind.、Yeah. Um, you know, people hear globalism and they say, "Well, it hasn't been fair. So many countries are left." In the dark, so many people are left in poor and poorer conditions. Only China and a few countries really made it, and so many people become less adventurous. And I think these are all true. But on the other hand, the pandemic also made me realize that we are really all connected. There is no way we can say, "Oh, we need to turn the, the clock backwards. We need to close everyone borders." We need to produce everything from A to Z. I think the next conversation should be how can we do it better? Yeah. How can the next generation of globalization and supply chain movement benefit more women? 
yes. and benefit more people in developing countries who has been the backbone of labor growth. Mm-hmm. And how can we give it more sustainable, longer term perspective? Yeah. So that's that's the way I think I want to frame the conversation versus globalism is all bad. Global supply chain is horrible. And we need in the U.S. to make everything. We don't need to make everything, but we absolutely as a country has to respect manufacturing, particularly the kind of manufacturing that can give everyone a fair chance, not just people with a computer science background, but people that want to use their hands to make things. Yes. To me, you know, that is so incredibly strategic as a country. We're too big to say everything else can go to China or Mexico. We can't be so arrogant. Mm, 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 mm. I'm going to get on a soapbox, May. I'm going to get on a soapbox. Um, no, I think that is, that's, that's the conversation I have on this show all the time. And, and one of the reasons I started it is because I want, you know, one of my missions is to connect consumers with their supply chains and whether, whether that is like in a personal way or just to unlock this, uh, door that has been shut for so long where it's, we live so much in this out of sight, out of mind, um, culture and mentality. And so we are so removed from our, uh, the effects of our purchases. And so, you know, I use the example of like, we are not that far removed, uh, you know, generationally from like our grandparents, great grandparents who like, they knew the, the guy down the road, like the tailor in their town who made their clothes, like very transparent. They knew, they knew their farmers who who grew their food. Like there was a face and a name behind like the milkman. I mean, there was just like, everything was personal and we were not uh, disconnected from our purchases. And now it's like we go to Target and we just buy things and we do not consciously think about the sets of hands that touched that thing. And, uh, you know, yes, I am all about, obviously, I'm a huge advocate for bringing manufacturing back to America, especially like I live in North Carolina, where um, at one time, North Carolina was one of the largest manufacturers of furniture, of denim and oh, uh, you guys textiles. Lost so many, so many industries, so many industries. Fabric, yes. fabric mills. It yeah. was crazy. North Carolina, South Carolina. Yeah. The whole uh, home industry actually in our country is sort of gone, yeah. you know, uh, very sad. The The candle industry, thanks to the Yankee candles of the world, uh, was able to sort of intact because it's so automated, yeah. right? There's not a lot of labor that's involved. But furniture, fabrications, mm-hmm. you know, I see the devastation to people because yeah. it's a life, it's a livelihood. You know? I know. So I have and so many friends here who, you know, were born and raised in North Carolina, whose parents or grandparents, uh, that was how they earned their living was working in the cotton mills, working in the fabric mills, working in the furniture factories, and they all lost jobs and, um, and the devastation that it took. And so I'm a huge advocate, obviously, for bringing those jobs back and, and manufacturing here. But I also am a huge advocate for like, when we are able to partner with factories and manufacturers um, overseas who are, right. uh, who are paying their workers living wage, living, right? living wage, living wage, sustainable yes. practice. Yes. Um, and, and who can also catch up because yes. let's face it, it's a, uh, it's a very big disparity. Mm-hmm. There is a big disparity. So 
Yeah, I, I think there is lack of coordination, lack yeah. of, uh, you know, this is why I'm so glad, Molly, that you and I really think on the same line, because yeah. my concern is that shareholder value has always been what all the public companies sort of aiming for. Yeah. And there's only one dimension, which is financial, right? There's no social dimension. So I'm actually happy to see the social elements are added, calling itself equality, you know, ESG. So equality, sustainability, and governance. But those are very big words. Yeah. How does consumers really understand that a company is doing that? They don't. Yeah. You, they still don't know how is that measured. Uh, one of the things I do feel we're trying to do at Yishimei is exactly what you said. As I was traveling around the world for the last 25 years, I had the opportunity to see and met, uh, meet a lot of small startup businesses or women-owned businesses. And there are little gems everywhere. A lot of them are heritage industry, you know, in Turkey, you find those beautiful meals that makes cotton towers. And, you know, Marrakesh, you have a lot of leather that are innovative. But it's very hard if you don't go there to buy their product yeah. before the pandemic. That's how I said, why don't I give a taste of what it feels like to have access and the numbers to all these amazing women? And that is the idea behind Yeshimei. On the one hand, we do want to help the women. We want to elevate their business because people think about women's business. They think about coffee mugs and they think about Christmas card. But we are more than coffee mugs and Christmas card. We are everything because we also buy everything. You know, that's yeah. the biggest disconnect for me is women in this country represent 80% of purchase power. Yes. Yet only 10% of the products made that are available to women mm. are made by women mm. because- the big companies, they don't want to buy from smaller women-owned businesses. So the learning, the pain point is never really appreciated by the big companies as design is never as important as financials, right? The financial guys are always the top and the leader. Have you ever hear one of the design person, if it's not a design brand like a Michael uh, Kors, is the CEO of a company? I don't think so. And have you ever heard that a lot of the even female-focused companies like Victoria's Secret have no one but men in their boards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying you have to literally wear the bra in order to understand what it feels to be wearing a bra, but it's kind of it's kind of a missing link. Yeah. And I feel at Yeshimei, we bring that link back. And just like you said, we also put our founder forward. Mm-hmm. We really want to say, hey, this is your lady. This is a woman that because the bag is so heavy that she's using all the time, she decided to build, build a bag that is lightweight. She wants it to be as light as a latte. And she got it. Her name is Alexander de Curtis. She lived in, um, she's in, in Italy. She grew up in Rome and she was working in, in London as an ad executive. And she was shopping a big bag to dinner, to, to meetings, and she's tired of it. Yeah. So women has that ability to innovate and design. And it's time to let them show us what does that look like. I'm going to take a quick break from my chat with May to thank our other partner of the show, and that is Mama Suds. Are you ready to ditch bleach forever, but you just have not been able to find a bleach alternative that actually works? 
you have to try the new extra strength oxygen powder by Mama Suds. I am a huge fan of Mama Suds. I've been using her products for years. I've had Michelle Smith, the head mama, on this show before. She creates the most incredible home cleaning products, laundry soap, Castile soap. It's all plant-based. It's clean, safe, and it actually works. I've been using the extra strength oxygen powder for months now, and it is a staple in my laundry routine because let's be honest, my clothes get dirty here at the farm. So, and because Michelle is a genius, there are multiple uses for the product. So not only is it a laundry booster and stain remover, but it's a great scouring agent on any non-porous surface. You can use the discount code MOLLY to get an extra 15% off at mamasuds.com. Now back to my chat with Meishi. Well, that uh, you bring up something that I was going to ask you about next. So this is the perfect time. And that is, uh, you know, you created this platform. Yes, she which I love the play on your name, uh, may she, yeah. um, yeah. and you created it in June, 2020, like in the midst of the pandemic. So tell us about what yes, she may is and what your goal with this platform is. It's exactly what you were aiming for is to connect consumers with brands that are owned by women. So we request that the brand has to be more than 50% owned by women. It's not enough to say Lily's, you know, tailor shop, because we know that it's only a name. I want to make sure the dollars goes half into a woman's pocket. Um, So with that being said, we went out and we searched around the world, um, not just in the U.S., designers and brands that are in fashion, beauty, home, and wellness so that it's an e-commerce website, but it's shipped from all over the world. So when you place an order, if it's a pair of shoes from Morocco, it's literally coming from Morocco. If it's a beach tower, it's literally coming from Turkey. If it's a bag, it's literally coming from the the Rome uh, workshop in Italy. And the way we are able to do it is we negotiate a very efficient rate with you know, shipping companies. We take care of all the marketing for our women brands. We interview them and we put on a very high tech platform so that they don't have to do a lot. If they have a website already, we connect with their back end so we can see the inventory. They can see the orders. When they ship it, we can see the tracking number. It's such a beautiful way that only become possible because of the idea that everything is shut down during COVID. Yeah. And how can we bring everything from all over the world into a platform that you can access for your living room? And that happened. You know, I'm not a technology person. Anybody who's a technology person in your audience, please raise your hand and reach out to me because <laughs> there are so many things you can imagine I want to do. Yeah. I want to use AI. I want to come up with a way to you know, scan our body, only secret to us, but then we can restore that to fit the clothes you want to try. Mm. Imagine you want to buy that shoe and how does that fit you, right? That's one of the biggest obstacles for online shopping for consumers is how do they fit it? So there's a lot of try and true. We try to describe the standards of sizes, but still, you know, there's different materials. The fit is different. So how do we overcome that? But anyway, I do feel what we're trying to accomplish is nothing short of miracle in the last year. We have five continents represented, more than 25 countries. 
Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, I almost think of it as just this, you know, you saw this opportunity to innovate. Um, and I know that innovation is a huge passion of yours. Um, and just this drive within you, um, that, uh, we have to have this, uh, sort of broader view of innovation that it doesn't have to, yes, technology is a piece of it, Right. It's a solution. It's right. a solution. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a means to the end. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I know that this has been, um, you know, a huge heart of yours. I love it. I love it. And I just, um, I mean, the fact that you have in, I mean, what, you know, like 13 months, 14 months that you've, uh, been able to, uh, to grow this platform, um, to that level is incredible. It's absolutely Thank incredible. You. Thank you, Molly. I, I have to say that it's incredible to see the enthusiasm from the vendors. Um, a lot of them continually reach out to us because you can probably imagine a lot of the international trade shows are not happening. And because the technology is so difficult to do what's called virtual exhibit, it doesn't exist. Mm. So we haven't seen any international vendors uh, you know, since last January, right? Uh, January of 2020. So I, I feel it's going to be a long time until the in-person trade shows can happen, until you can really see a big group of brands at one place at the same time. So imagine we just did everything in very old-fashioned one-on-one way, and we already have this kind of uh, presence. But it also gives you just a peek at the creativity and the talent of women. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Um, look at some of the silk pajamas, you know, one of the brand called Solaceta. When you see it, you just want to cry because it comes all the way from Shanghai. And it really looked like a museum piece. Mm. The art, the silk quality, the shine, um, and very impeccable in the in the sense of the, the work workmanship. So I, I feel that we have opened a new front. Uh, we are challenging, you know, speaking of innovation, the idea of retail, is it really better to have a buying power where everyone has the same product in every mall? Or is it better that it's curated? It's more thoughtful. It encourages slow consumption versus fast fashion. Yeah. It encourages you to discover and connect more with the producers yeah. and the makers and building that kind of uh, support system for them. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I, and I love your passion, especially for women entrepreneurs, because that is a, a shared passion of mine. And it's, I, I love sharing this statistic. I share it all the time um, because <laughs> my husband is named John. And one of my, the funniest slash saddest statistics is that there are more CEOs of, of companies named John than there are women CEOs. <laughs> so, I believe you. I believe yeah. you. Um, not only that, the statistics is that very small part of women on business actually make more than $250,000 a year. Yeah. So when you are that small, there's no way you will be in front of a Target or Amazon or, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond or Macy. So consumers would never see you. They would never find you. Even if they love you, it's just not going to happen. So the chances of them finding you is zero. Yeah, That's why I try to defy that rule. I try to say, well, wait a second. What do you know that the economic success, it's only valued because they can ship to a Macy? What do you think if people value the unique proposition 
Why do we wear clothing that, uh, you know, a hundred Macy's stores or a thousand Macy's stores carry, right? Yeah. Nowadays, everybody's on the Instagram and say, oh, this is from uh, Ann Taylor. Oh, this is from, you know, J. Crew. It's not fun to be able to be called out like that. Yeah. I think, right, there, yeah. there has to be uh, in the middle something that people have to guess, hmm, you know, that looks very Chinese or that looks very Japanese. Guess what? They are from those countries. They yeah. are made people. Isn't that more remarkable when you can actually see alpaca sweater from uh, Peru, yeah. <laughs> where women actually yeah. put their babies on their back when they're working? Yeah. And that picture comes to mind. Yeah. It's just it's more authentic. Yeah. And it connects us. It connects us. It, it introduces us to different styles and cultures and it creates a conversation and it just, you know, and exactly. It, I love it. Exactly. I love so it. I'm doing something fun, as you can tell. But, um, you know, there are growing pains. Yeah. We, we, we are fighting with very big brands on ad dollars. You know, we, we, we are basically competing with everyone for the word dress, the yeah. word alpaca sweater, right? Um, and to get our name out, I'm telling you, Molly, is very, very hard. Yeah. It's like finding needles in a haystack. Yeah. Consumers are not yet looking for women-owned businesses. You know, it's happy... Uh, for them if they can find it, but they're not yet doing that. So um, we are we are trying to break all the noises, particularly now it's going to be holiday season, but it's very hard. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely feel the pain of small uh, and, and startup companies. Yeah. Again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you also uh, in, you know, pretty recently you uh, wrote a book, which is amazing. Congratulations. And it's called Burn, How Grit, Innovation, and a Dash of Luck Ignited a Multi-Million Dollar Success Story. So tell us about the book and, uh, and you know, why, why people should read it. Well, I think Burn is your American story. Yeah. It's your story about preservation, but also the immigrant story. Um, I like to remind everyone that that's our background as yeah. a nation. Yeah. And that's what we are and who we are. And we can never abandon this um, this origin and this sort of sense where we came from. So um, when I wrote the book, I think I was a little, I wasn't sure if I want to wrote, write it in the beginning because I think it's a little bit of, of a um, about me. And I'm not sure why would anybody want to read about a candle lady, you know? I said, who wants to read about a candle lady? And my husband, who's a professor of economics and finance, told me, he said, it's not for you. It's for the women and men who may not have the guts to start thinking about a new career Mm. or move their jobs or just quit because they don't like the environment and they want to do something out of nothing. Yeah, It's for them. And it's for them like a map. This is where you you started. Yes, you're going to have all these problems. It's to make sure that your story is going to inspire other people to do similar things, not making candles, but making something similar to what you did. And you know what? When I finished writing, I really thank him because it's really true. So many people came to say, oh, I know that feeling when I couldn't do what I was trained to do. You know, I was trained as a eye doctor in India. Now I'm driving a taxi because I don't have the license to practice in this country. What can I do? There are so many challenges in our life. So this is the minimal we can do for each other. The second thing is it actually helped me to understand myself much better. I learned that at the end of the day that... um, 
you know, your journey is actually written by you. It, it's no one else's mm. uh, sort of dictating that. You could pivot, you could remake yourself over and over in a lifetime. Um, I don't know if this journey that I started during the COVID is going to be successful. A lot of times I wish I have more support because this is almost like a nonprofit to me. You know, I put all the all the needed cash into the business. And sometimes I wonder, you know, I could go and raise funding or I could maybe ask for donations. But at some point, I just feel just do it. You know, if you don't trust your own instinct, who's going to trust you? Let me make this a little bit longer. Let me just work on this a little bit better so that by the time I can introduce it in, in front of the traditional investment group or uh, my friends even, they can say, May, you have given your own money. You have paved the way and you took the bullet and you swallowed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it did not explode, but we know what it takes. And if I am so determined, you know, even if I couldn't succeed as I did with the candle business, at least I know I can't regret, you know, I yeah. did what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I am preaching what I um, practice and practice what I preach at the same time. And I think that book is also very lighthearted. Uh, it talked about the journey of someone who's full of ideas and dreams and land herself squarely on her butt. <laughs> and how did she get up and just dust it off and move on? You know, we're no Cinderella's, but we are also no princesses. Women are tough. Mm. Women are tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's they- all, it's for all the women, yeah, all the moms, all the sisters um, that you know, want to be successful and just feel successful yeah. one day. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. May, um, I could talk to you all day. I have like 80 more <laughs> questions I want to ask. Um, but before we get to the get to know you round, just as we are wrapping up here, um, what are the best ways that people can connect with you, support you, and just learn more about what you're doing? So you can find me um on the website, yes she may, uh Y E S. S-H-E-M-A-Y. And my email, which is the easiest way to find, is may at meishi.com. You can find me on Instagram as meishi0001. Guess there's a lot of meishi there. And the meishi.com on, you know, other LinkedIn or Twitter. Yes. But not as active as I should. I hope that one day I'll give myself enough time to update those, um, you know, links. But my company's website and you know it's 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 very helpful and reach out to me at um, my email may at yeshi may may at yeshi may awesome oh man i love it okay well before we uh end this is the part where i get to ask just some fun get to know you questions so uh may are you ready for the get to know you round? <laughs> oh, I'm so nervous. Uh, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Be red handed. I have no answer. <laughs> okay. If someone were to play you in the movie that's eventually going to be made about your life, who would you want it to be? Oh, with with Swan. What is her name? The, the the one that played um I know that she's blonde and everything, but I really like her. <laughs> Wait, so who is it? The, the one that played, um, you know, in, in, she's like legally blonde. Oh, uh, uh, Reese Witherspoon. Right, Witherspoon. I think she can be me. She's, she's going to have to do a lot of work, but <laughs> she has that attitude that I have. I love it. No nonsense. You know, she just have fun in us having fun and stylish 
but also know what you want. I love it. That's fantastic. <laughs> um, okay, May, do you have any hidden or unusual talents? Oh, I'm not sure if I have. Uh, I think I could be a comedian. Yes, really. I think so. <laughs> I have. I have very good timing, <laughs> and I have very good like instinct. I need to obviously work on my craft. <laughs> you should. I, I can see myself doing a business focused comedian club. Yeah. What do you think about? Yeah, that? I think that could be fun. I totally right? think so. You should totally moonlight as a stand up comic. I think <laughs> that would be so fun. Yeah, I'm imagining. New York City, there's an off, off, off Broadway theater devoted to want to be businessman, businesswoman. <laughs> and everyone who, who's there has to run a business before and has to fail a few times. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Uh, I love it. Okay. Um, what was the best vacation you have ever taken? Oh, that is a hard one. I have so many vacations. That's a hidden um, sort of quality of me too is is uh, vacation planning. So if I failed both of those careers, a comedian and, and a businesswoman, just be a travel agent, I want to plan other people's vacation. <laughs> and if they take me along, that's even better. Um, I can always, always quality control for them. I think the one that is the best is the one when in our house, we went to uh, Sardinia and we took a boat trip basically for seven days. Mm. And it was amazing. Every day we walk up, we swim to an island where there's no one. It's just not occupied. And then when 10 o'clock come, all the cruise ships will start landing on those islands. We start swimming back to our, to our ship and then the boat will go. I use the word ship, but it's a boat. That so. sounds heavenly and so it magical. Heavenly. Oh, I would. If you have never lived on a boat once, you should do that. I'm not talking about big cruise ships, but something easier and smaller. And it's that wonder, it's that closeness to nature yeah. and sunrise and sunset. Mm. And you feel the wave, that sense of living in nature is just remarkable. I love it. I love it. And then this is my last question that I ask all of my guests. And that is, May, what does it mean to you to run a business with purpose? You know, I would say this with my favorite quote. Um, you know, I run a candle business. To do something that you truly enjoy doing, uh, particularly with a purpose, reminds me of uh, this quote. A candle loses nothing by lighting up another. Hmm. Because when we are doing something that help other people, it actually doesn't take anything away from us. It strengthens us. Uh, it makes what we do even more illuminating. So I, I feel that we are on this journey to start seeing some shift. People are no longer just working for the sake of working. They want to find a purpose, right? People want to find purpose. And the job of corporations and organizations is to not fall behind yeah. and not fight that pursuit of purpose. And I think that was that is going to be aligned and things will be better when the individual goals and corporations goals are aligned. Mm. So a candle loses nothing by lighting up another. That oh. is my firm belief. 
Oh, that's a great, uh, man, that is good. That is so good. May, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, It has been such a pleasure and a treat to uh, chat with you and to learn more about you. And I just cannot wait to see how you continue to light the candles of other women (laughs) entrepreneurs. We, uh, we all, Molly, in our own way, you are lighting up a lot of candles as we speak. So thank you for what you do. And I hope you agree with me that we'll all go out and buy more Chesapeake Bay candles. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Have a great rest of the week. And I hope to uh, hear from you soon. Friend, I would love to know what you loved about this episode or something that you learned. Find me on social media. I'm at Still Being Molly or at Business with Purpose Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to use that hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast when you're sharing the show with a friend. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you are a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to check out the archives for past shows featuring so many incredible entrepreneurs, business owners, community leaders who are changing the world. If you are a regular listener of the show, thank you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for tuning in week in and week out. Be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, Overcast, Stitcher, basically wherever you get your podcasts, click that subscribe or follow button. To click that button means you will never miss a new episode of the show. And while you're there, would you take a moment to just leave a review? Would you take a moment to maybe share one of your favorite episodes with a friend, leaving a review, sharing the show with a friend? It is totally free for you. And it is the biggest help for me in the entire world. You have no idea how much I appreciate it. It just also helps me to know what you're liking and how the show is impacting you. As always, this show is produced by the incredible team at Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose.